0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome to the Hard Luck Show. I'm your certified, qualified West Side host, Steve Lucky Luciano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. You've tuned in to the greatest show on earth. It's the Hard Luck Show coming at You from the bunker in Southern California. Sitting across from me, my co-host, my partner,
2: is Chumahan Bowen, American Indian, Southern Californian, elegant barbarian, here to improvise once again. Yay!
0: Yeah.
2: Oh. Ah. Come on! Yeah, I oh. wanna take you to the gay bar of audio! Get hard and get wet, cause I've got eight arms and I'm jacking all of you <laughs> off! <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> what the fuck? Look at Stein's face. Hell? He's not sure if that's funny or if I'm yeah, serious yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I take it this is a family show. Yeah, oh, yeah. We oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. keep
2: it all in the family. Taboo, <laughs> baby. Taboo. That's our number one hit. Yeah, nice. man. And on audio,
1: <laughs> Sean Lewis. Old blue eyes. I'm taking audio you professional to a Engineer for the Hard Luck Show.
2: What was your intro? Uh,
1: I couldn't play it because it fucking it was on a drive, and it fucking
2: it's not working all right, mm-hmm. speaking of not working, speaking of what it's in the drive, mm. speaking of no intro, mm. we've got some kind of interstellar exclusive mm-hmm. guest who said. I don't need a fucking intro. I don't need a
0: fucking intro. He That's said right. intro he music
2: is
1: thing. for
3: fucking saps.
1: He does his own thing. I hey, love listen, guys I want to welcome a friend of mine I just don't
3: do intro on my show.
1: Right. Listen.
3: I do like uh, a verbal intro. I don't do any music.
1: Mike doesn't need, no. Mike does not need an okay. intro. That's a waste of time right there for him. Right. That's good, valuable time. We could be talking about some right. other shit. I want to bring in, this is a friend of mine, and if listeners are listening, I was on the long shot leadership uh, podcast about maybe six weeks ago um and that's my my dear friend michael stein who i've been friends with for 30 years and he's he's got a really colorful history man and we've had a lot of different exchanges and we have a long history in la as well and um he we reconnected and he asked me to be on we had a great hour and a wait half a second.
2: Talk. wait a second on what what was it exactly the name i know you said it but i missed it Um,
1: it's the long
2: shot leadership podcast. And from your perspective, what is that podcast about?
1: Um, I, I, I really think that I, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, but it's in a lot of ways, he too is letting people tell their, their, their journey. And, uh, and maybe it's not your average story. Like, like, you know, how different people, how they got to different places and he, um, What's the long shot part of it? You know what, Mike? Tell us what's the well, long to tell
3: you. Part. All right, yeah. here we go. So basically,
1: long Welcome shot Welcome to leaders- the show, Michael Stein. Let's give, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's give Michael Stein. Man. Thank Welcome, you. I love my show. Jesus Christ. Let's I love go. You, that was a long Thank intro. Thank you for yeah.
3: having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I like I like your vibe here. So long shot leaders uh, podcast is basically started in March, and it's about people that have overcome large obstacles to find success. And we've interviewed anybody from Academy Award winner to Holocaust survivor to... You know, Steve, you got a a great long shot story. So it's a long shot. People that, you know, had to come over major obstacles. And it doesn't have to be just finding financial. It's all kinds of emotional, you know, it could be any kind of spiritual kind of, you know, something that, you know, really clicks that has an arc to the story. And that's why I do the show and... If you want, I can tell you a little bit about myself, why I do a show called Long Shot Leaders. All right, so let me just set
2: this up for Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds and cut the shit. We're going to have you go ahead and set it up a little bit, you and and your movement, right? And then if I understand correctly, you've got about a nine-minute thing related to Steve, some kind of bubbling, brewing, interesting thought. Uh, And so why don't we start with you and then let us know when you're hitting... The down and dirty with Mr. Luciano.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, and you know, it'll be the whole you know thing to where you understand why I do the show and my little Reader's Digest history. And then at the end of that, I'm gonna go a little deep, and I don't know how deep you want to go. You could always cut it out. Nope. But you know, nope. Nope. This is a raw, unfiltered. This is a raw and unfiltered fucking show. Okay, here we go. Blast off, Holmes. All right. So my name is Michael Stein. I do a show called Longshot Leaders because I'm what you might call longshot. And I come from a long line of long shots. My grandmother escaped the Russian concentration camps on her way to America. My dad was a New York street kid who became a multimillionaire, only to become homeless again. And I was an unplanned child. I was had health issues, ADD, ADHD, dyslexia. I was in and out of the hospitals when I was a kid. My dad left my mom because he was crazy, you know, mofo. And his life was loosely based on like the character and, Reynolds character in Boogie Nights, which we're going to get to that later.
2: Wait, what? But he left.
3: We're going to get to that later. <laughs> just just keep a note. So, my dad takes off. So, I had to grow, grow up with my, we were like the poorest family in a rich neighborhood of Encino, where I grew up. Mm. So, we were like the, you know, Beverly Hills hillbillies. We were like the Encino Jubilees. So, everybody's rich, we're poor. I had to sleep in the same room with my grandmother and hear the story about how we were lucky to be alive to escape the Russian concentration camps. Then I hear my stories of my dad being homeless. Then my mom tells, everybody and their son that i'm lucky to be alive because she drank she smoked she ran up and down the stairs but i survived and i was like mom they just want to know if you want ranch or blue cheese could just give them the order and let's you know stop telling everybody's story so i was the youngest kid in a large you know family and i grew up with this mantra of you know being an underdog and i was i couldn't succeed at anything other than when i was a kid i used to make people laugh i'd make them laugh at me for me whatever and that was my first bit of success. And that's just a basket case. And then, and health issues and everything. So then one day I was like 10 or 11 years old, like most kids, you know, in America, they see the movie Rocky. I got become super inspired. said, here's a guy like me. He's not successful. He keeps on trying. He is uh, funny, but he, he's physically fit. That's the only difference between him and me. So I started making physical fitness my thing ever since then. And by the time I was 16 years old, I became a physical fitness trainer. So then I found, okay, that's two bits of success. Now, I want to be like my dad, though. I want to be like my dad. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be an actor. And I want to be a filmmaker. I tell my high school tutor this. She goes, you know, maybe you should just do something with your hands because not everybody's meant to do what they want to do. And I was like, screw you, bitch. I'm going to do what I want to do. So then a week after high school, I want to do what my dad did. Now, this is what my dad did. In the 60s, he had a tool business. And there's a reason why I'm telling you this. And his partner was this guy named Alan Smith. Business was okay. It kind of fledged. Then he said you know what this calculator business up in canada that's when calculators became really smaller they used to be huge and he started this mail order campaign and he made millions right and then doing a lavish lifestyle limos orgies cocaine heart attacks all kinds of crazy shit he burned through his money and by the time that was all gone and he was homeless and he started the tool business again his old partner back in the 60s a guy named alan smith started a company called Harbor Freight in 1975, which turned out to be a multi-billion dollar company. And I saw a rich man, poor Ran right before my eyes. So I said, I want to be an entrepreneur, an actor and a comedian. And I can do it because i seen my dad, you know, do that. So she says, okay, whatever, you can't do it. I start a business the day after high school, selling tools in my bedroom at my parents' house. And it fails miserably. I was like, holy shit, maybe this bitch is right. I ain't got it, you know? At the time, at the same time, my dad hits rock bottom he's he hits not he's homeless because he just did like credit uh check fraud check kiting where you write the bad check and he gets he goes to wayside remember we talked about wayside Steve. yeah so i'm throwing him 20 dollar bills he i'm working for him for free driving to compton every day making deliveries seeing how business works right and after my business failed and then my dad gets out of jail moves into a van outside of the house in encino that he bought and he lives in that van and i got to Hey, good morning, dad. It's good to see you. Get to see my dad now. And then I see how he kind of fights back to the bottom from nothing with his tool business. So I, after my tool business failed, I said, I got to do something. And I got to do something. I failed. I see my dad failing. I, I, so I do stand-up comedy, 19 years old. And I, I've packed the house. And I was like, holy shit, you know? I can't. Comedians don't make any money. But I did well bringing people here. I said, I'm going to become a nightclub promoter because nightclubs are rocking right now. 1987 86 so I start promoting nightclubs within six months I become the number one nightclub promoter in Los Angeles in my age bracket that's when Steve knows my history there a uh, club called off the wall you know it was like it was I wasn't even 20 so it was like 16 to 24 year olds you know called off the wall and I had within six months after that I created one of the I, I started creating one of the largest movie premier promotions at a nightclub at the Park Plaza Hotel. Four thousand people for the movie Batman. Because my girlfriend at the time was Peter Gruber's daughter, and my friend uh, acquaintance was Peter Gruber's partner, John Peters, and they were making the Batman movie. And I orchestrated this whole big event. So then I say, "Well, now I'm to I be an actor, right?" And there's a reason why I'm telling you all this shit. So I, I said, "I, I tried There's this one guy. He's 17 year old kid. He needs a. He's going out with my girlfriend's sister. He needs a ride home because right, he doesn't have a car his name is paul anderson now known as paul thomas anderson Boogie so nights. i drive him home and i'm rolling i'm doing a stand-up routine for him i don't know this kid i just want to make him laugh you know so then i'm give him like a half hour ride home and just making him roll two days later he calls me up and says look i want to do a short film about the rise and fall of a porno star named dirt diggler do you want to play dirt diggler i was like hell yeah i want to be an actor and an entrepreneur and a an comedian so then Two months later, we did some other film projects, like, you know, fun stuff leading up to that. And then I was, that was my first acting role playing Dirt Diggler and the Dirt Diggler story, which I also, which became Boogie Nights, which I also appear in as well. So, but back to after that, I I said, I want to be a filmmaker now. You know, I want to kind of, you know, segue out of the nightclub business into filmmaking. So I started doing documentaries on the LA club scene. And then once again, 4,000 people, Park Plaza Hotel. I directed a documentary on the history of LA clubs Called Trilogy about the, the 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 nightclub scene in Los Angeles. And from there I said, you know what? I'm gonna segue this into more bigger documentaries. So I do a documentary called Generation of Sound on the history of house music and raves, and I go around the country for four months filming the biggest DJs, magazine writers, you know, promoters around the United States on the history of house music. I come back, it does well, but it in the sense that people want it, but it fails. I make no money, and I'm broke again. And I've burned the boats to try to get my career going. So then you see the up and down part of the career. So then I have to go back to promoting clubs. And this is where it gets deeper. I start promoting underground gambling clubs. And a guy named uh, Eddie Hara and Big Daddy Carlos say, Hey, Mike, you know, you got a good crowd. You're bringing crowds. You know, I start promoting clubs again. He's want to do something called Sweet Daddy Browns. So I start doing this nightclub you know, gambling party called Sweet Daddy Brown's on Friday nights. And it does, it's booming. It's huge. It's a big thing in LA. But I didn't have any of the gambling. Now, at the time, I was also friends with a guy named Larry Pollack, who eventually would own the Saddle Ranch restaurants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Larry, he's like, just got over being homeless himself at the time. And he started promoting clubs again, because he's had up and down career. And he goes, Mike, he's like, you're bringing all the people here. You don't make any money on the gambling. He's like, why don't we do this? Why don't we just do gambling parties? And then you can, you know, we could just bring in the gamblers at hotel suites, and I was like, "Let's do it." So we do that on Saturday nights, and that becomes such a big thing. This is before Molly's game and rounders and all that shit, and we are break. We're bringing in all kinds of tables in, you know, into hotel suites, and it gets to be a huge thing. the The West Hollywood Police Department shut us down, but we didn't get busted. But I did it. Until I, something happens and I'll get back to what happened, you know, and I said, look, I can't do this kind of business anymore. I'm dropping out. I can't do illegal gambling parties. The last one I did was up at Sundance for my friend Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie, Heart 8, up in um, uh, his movie, up in Sundance. So we did a gambling party there because his heart, the movie Heart 8 was about gambling. And every star in Hollywood was there. Was, it was awesome. Just, I, don't so mean, then, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but do you meet Steve at any point during this? Oh, Steve. Steve was in the documentary, Generation of Stouts. Steve was doing my door. Steve was there the whole time. Uh, okay. That's my I brother right there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right. I love everybody from my nightclub days, man. It, know, Steve's it's a hard, it's hard luck show. We got to make sure. We're getting, we're
1: getting all right, we're getting this well, whole story right He's
3: a master storyteller, but we I feel like we're getting far afield. But all right. Let's... Oh, no. It's all going to come back. I promise you. All right. I let's some go. Cool go. let's do All right. Okay. So then I say, okay, you know, I got to, screw it. I got to get out of all this. I drop everything. I become, to, to get my education, because I saw Paul drop out of NYU to become a big filmmaker. I, I became a production assistant, and I learned how to do uh, filmmaking on commercials. After three years, I did an award-winning short film called Rituals and Resolutions that won the two biggest short film festivals in the, war, in the world. Hold on. Yeah. Let, me, let me just, for Mr. and Mrs. Earbuds, when he says,
2: first of all, When he says he became a production assistant, I want everyone to understand. Whatever the underworld party, da-da-da, he's doing, he was already kind of a mocker, a big guy. And then to go to a production assistant is like going back to
3: 7-Eleven and just stocking shelves. All right, so he's starting over. Okay, go. You got it, brother. I'm telling you, that's the nail on the head, you know? But that was the only way. I didn't have enough money. At the time, I was like, I'm not going to pay for college. I'm not college material. No one, you know, so I just... Did that, and and it was great, because not only did it give me the acumen on how to be a good filmmaker, but it gave me the crew, the best of the best work on commercials, because you get paid more per day. All those big filmmakers, when they're not making films, they're working on commercials. So I learned how to be a really good filmmaker, and I won many awards through that short film. It got bought by HBO. I got many, many meetings. I got meeting with Joel Silver's office. I almost got a deal to, to, for, with Trimark Pictures to do a gambling movie about underground gambling casinos in Los Angeles, and we're going to get back to that, too. So then, after two years of development hell, I was broke and in debt. I uh, had no money. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Nobody in Hollywood does shit. Everybody talks shit. No one is fucking. Hold on. <laughs> hold, on, hold on. No, no, no disrespect. I want to stop you right there. Just describe the pain
2: of almost having a deal. Because most people don't even get to that part. No. Right? Most people are. You know, still with their whiteboard in the garage with their drunk buddies talking about what would be a great idea. To get to the part of almost having a deal is a fucking Herculean task. And yet, I, almost having not, just being that close and taking all those meetings, there's nothing more painful and
3: ball-busting than that, right? I love Chumahan. I just Because <laughs> he's, he's he sees dude. the matrix. He, psychological, you know, conscious-wise, consciousness. Right. I love it. I'm going to answer that. It's very debilitating because the ebb and flow. But I w- I had training in this because I was the basket case kid. I was the ADHD dyslexia. Even Steve will test this. When I was a nightclub promoter, you're like a mini celebrity. But I was always humble because I was like, they're going to find out who the fuck I am. Right. Yeah. I was I was very physically, fit. you know, but I'm an imposter. I had the imposter syndrome. Yeah. So I was like, I was used to it. I was like, okay, fuck it. I see my dad live out of a van and my dad used to be like Elvis. So I was like, fuck it. I don't care. You know, I just want to do it. And I understand about failing to succeed. Right. So even right. back then I did. But I was so tired of fucking Hollywood, man, the fucking bullshit. And that's where I'm from, grown and raised. And I grew up with all these people. I played bat, I played handball with Janet Jackson when I was a kid. It How was good bullshit. is she? How good is she? <laughs> Don't fuck with us. How good is Janet Jackson she, she, she at she handball? Can fucking throw some slices like a motherfucker, man. Mm-hmm. Don't lie to us. Did you kiss her?
2: Don't lie to us. Did you make out with Janet Jackson? Yes or no? I, know, I
3: wish I did. Dude, was she I was hot, afraid, bro? Hey, fifth grade, I was trying everything acting. I could,
2: bro. I was walking around would, with my pants undone. That would have been nice. All right, go yeah, ahead. But, Sorry, hey,
3: bro. look, but I I was just naive, though. My dad brought a prostitute my, to my bar mitzvah. You don't do that, Shukamon. <laughs> That's don't? not right. Is that not you right? No, well, I have I mean, a, now
1: I like your dad more than ever. Yeah, all of a
3: yeah. sudden, yeah. I want to go bowling with your dad. Yeah. I think it was an offering, and if it didn't fall through, he had something to back on that night, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no problem. Right, right. He wasn't going to was blow that. Right. right. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to make my own movie, but I'm not making the gambling movie. I'm going to make a movie that no one's going to let me make. It's going to be a crazy fucking movie that I've always wanted to make since I was a kid. It was like a Kentucky Fried movie. Is like a version of Kentucky Fried movie and uh, American Beauty. It was a drama comedy, outrageous <laughs> comedy about love and dysfunctional relationships in Hollywood. It had 420 stories. It was called Love Hollywood Style. The only problem is No one wanted to make this script. I knew it. My agent at the time, he's like, why would you fucking want to make a screenplay that no one's gonna fucking want to make? I'm like, cause I want to see this shit and I know people that want to see it. So then I, I'm broke though. So then I have to become an entrepreneur again. And this is right around 1999 when the internet's still young. And I was like, my dad wants me to sell tools. I I have that background. I've got like the Harbor freight pedigree, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, but I gotta pick one thing. You gotta niche down. So I was like, tarps. They're simple. <laughs> I've looked at all bunch of things. That's a good... Tarps. That's it. Come on. Come on. I wish it was romantic, Wait, bro. I, I, I wish w- it I, was... Yeah, no.
2: no, no it's we're right not about that, that no. bro. Look at... Th- yeah. This is Little Stein. Young Stein. <laughs> young Stein sitting there and he's like... Fuck, man. I've been through about 10 <laughs> industries. I'm flat fucking busted. My dad was making in tools, but I got to cut a name for myself. You know, what is it? that Think, Stein. Think. And then it hit me.
3: Tarps. <laughs> That's right. Tarps.
2: Tarps. That's keeps the wire You know
3: what's out. funny about that, yeah. bro? Hmm. My dad was known as the calculator kid because he sold so many fucking calculators. And <laughs> uh, I wanted to be my dad. Right, and right. I thought, when I was a kid, I want to be the calculator kid. But I, w- I also wanted to be an actor, so I was like, screw it. And I was pissed off that I had to sell tarps. But
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Come on.
3: I wanted, to be- I wanted to be like, I want to thank the Academy. I right. want to study, you know, actor at that point. Yeah, you but know, did you know years. that they knew Stein as the czar of tarps? Yes. He was yes. the tarps czar. <laughs> well, within six months, I made a half a million dollars, and I was able to make my movie, and I started making this movie called Love Hollywood Style with Faye Dunaway, Andy Dick, and Coolio. Wow. Within two years— I I become known, my moniker in the industry was Hurricane Mike, because I started selling all the tarps when all the hurricanes happened in the United States. Wow. You see? So now I was like, See what you get for laughing, Steve? Laughing, Sean? You gotta take this shit serious. Go ahead. (laughs) Right. I was like, you know what, Mike, you didn't get what you totally wanted, but you got you got what you needed. And I wasn't the calculator kid, but I was Hurricane Mike. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold
2: on, hold on, 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 everyone. All right,
3: let's listen. Let's all calm down. Let's
2: all calm down. Faye Dunaway, yeah. Coolio, and Andy yeah. Dick. Explain yeah. the casting process there.
3: Okay, so here's the thing. It was an collective cast. It also Stephen Topolowski's I mean, so many names. You'd see not even household names. You, you, Rick, it was a star of cast because I did so well with my short film. Everybody's like, this kid's going to blow up next. I'm going to do his own thing. And I knew I had that inertia still. So I was able to get names through my short film. But they're like, this is a little crazy. But Faye Dunaway, I only need, I only needed these people for one day because it was, it was intertwining stories. Right. They but Faye Dunaway
2: things. is like, is like a, a marquee, you know, uh, name with a lot of legacy and cachet. She's, a, she's like from the real days.
3: She's a two-time Academy Award-winning actress, and I got to act with her, and i I took that shit seriously, and Were I Were you nervous? She, no. Because I was ready, I pre- I prepared the fuck out of my whole everything. I was prepared at that point. Did you I fall John so in- through the gauntlet of Hollywood? Did you fall in love with her during the process at all? Like, did you feel any oh, chemistry? But- now, i think she fell in love with me because she, she called me um liam which is her son's name and i was like i got this bitch now she tried to damn. breastfeed. tried to breastfeed with faye dunaway yeah yeah i, I was breastfeeding during the scene like hour, right? <laughs> but she, what about andy she,
2: dick did you breastfeed with Andy? oh dick? wow yeah
3: well, <laughs> now that's the real I, question that's the real story what kind I think of that's milk a you produce? With, Dan, with andy yeah. um there, there's some crazy stories to, uh, but I will. I'm going to go back now. Oh, yes. Now that kind of know a little bit more. Since then, I will tell you. I'll just give you the denouement edit for a film reference. To film. All right. Yeah. Look it up. Listen. Look All at right. this guy. That means and the end it, of the film. The little extra scene mm-hmm. to cap this That's off. French, my story. You lugheads.
2: All right. Go ahead. Yes.
3: You know, con film festival. So, <laughs> the end of this is is that since then the the money I've made from this business is made over a hundred million dollars, and I have. Look at us idiots I, I, laughing I, 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 when at we i done Stein, with this
1: thing. I didn't yeah. take a loan out. Laughing, with this
2: yeah, guy.
3: yeah, Mike go said, ahead. hey,
1: by the way,
2: I got an investment opportunity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you like solar power? Do you believe in solar energy? Because that's the wave of the future, buddy. Go ahead.
3: So, go but ahead. the reason why I tell you all this is because I was burning the boats to make this film and I almost bottled out my, this business. And I got so sick of it. The business was growing so much. I had to make a choice between opportunity and passion. And I chose opportunity to grow my business. Now that my daughters are getting older, I'm going back, and that's why I'm doing a podcast. I'm starting to write again. I'm starting to do stand-up again, and I'm opening up my entertainment part of my career because I have more time to still do my business, but also still be an entrepreneur, an actor, and a stand-up comedian. Right. Now, yeah. Here's right. Here's where wow. your show ties I'm into like my I'm sweating. I'm sweating. Man, from that, that was heavy. I'm exhausted. Anyone got Beautiful. protein powder? All right, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go wait, ahead. wait, wait,
1: wait.
3: I, I want to get into your show, Steve-O, and everything. Okay. All right. Now, when I, I'm going to come full circle for you guys. All right? Yeah. Now you we can We're cut this out. This too much.
1: Right.
3: Go okay. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Right. It might, it might not, because there's another party involved here. Okay. So, when I did the gambling parties, okay, it was huge. Now, but you have to understand, I had a party going on Friday nights with these other guys, right? And I had the gambling parties and hotel suites going on on Saturday nights, right? And the, the Saturday night thing, the hotel suites became so big. It was free alcohol, free cigars and cigarettes. It was showgirls. It was, it, was, it was amazing. 150 people inside hotel suites. It was so insane that the other guys started getting jealous. Eddie Heron, Big Daddy Carlos. And now they were partners with um, my good old friend, Steve Edelson, they, they were, you know, who owns restaurants in LA. He, they were all starting to get upset. And Larry's like, screw it. What do you care? I'm like, well, they shouldn't get upset because it's a different night. And I wrote the screenplay. This is what I wrote the screenplay about, right? So one night at a club that I did called Turkey Soup, it was the biggest nightclub for Thanksgiving in Los Angeles. We did, Mike Messicks and I did it for 14 years in a row. And Steve was the doorman there many times. And it was a big Thanksgiving event. And at the same night, um, I was doing the Underground Gambling Casino as a special event outside of West Hollywood because we couldn't do it anymore. It was in Hollywood Mm. at the Hollywood Athletic Club. Mm. And these guys come up to me in the beginning of the night Mm. at my club. And they say, are you Michael Stein? I said, yeah. I said, look, man, uh, we understand you got a profitable situation going on in town and we want to be partners. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> I, this is Paul Anderson. This is Paul Thomas Anderson. He's fucking with me. He's an act. These are actors. And I said, can I ask you a question? You, you know, Paul to Anderson. They're like, maybe. And I'm like, these guys are serious. And then they introduced me to who they are. And I was like, fuck, this guy's straight up serious. He's saying, this is my name. This is who I am. We're going to be partners if you're going to do this. And, and what we're going to give you in return is protection to make sure you don't get busted. You know what I'm saying? Right. So then I was like, right. okay, mm-hmm. all right. So now I go to my, because I, I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just an actor at this point. I'm like, I go to my friends and I feel like in a mafia, right? I go to my friend, who'll be nameless, that lives in Vegas is friends of my dad. And he's a, he's a, 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 a Sicilian on both sides. And he goes, hey, Mike, let me ask you a question. You know, he's always wanted to be in my movies. He right. goes, why don't you make movies? Get out of this shit. I could play a doctor, lawyer, gangster, mobster, anything that ends with an R. I could play it. Put me in your fucking movies, man. And, and I was his, like.
2: And wait, real quick.
3: And his name was yeah. Joe Pesci, correct? No, I wish <laughs> I'd be I'd be doing I'd be doing films right now. If it was right. So I I was like, he goes, how much are you making? I go, oh, we're making at least, you know, two or three thousand dollars a night. He goes, come on, man. He's like, this is not your long term goal, Mike. You got to get out of this shit. I talked to some other friends. My other friend, uh, Stan Parvin, his dad owned the Flamingo, the Sands and the Dunes and all it landed light on. He's like, Mike, I don't know anything about that shit. My dad was an interior decorator and took all those casinos over because he owned, eventually owned it through uh, equity. Mm. So I go back to these guys and say, and they made me wait over Thanksgiving to give, let them know that I wasn't going to do it. And I said, look, and, and my friend, my Sicilian friend's like, treat them with respect. Tell them that you respect them. Tell them that you don't want to do anymore, okay? All right? I was like, okay. So I talked to the guys, and I said, look, man. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I said, I just want to be an actor. I said, you want to do it? You can talk to my friend, Larry I'll let him do it. Larry was like, fuck those guys, but Larry couldn't do it without me because I brought in the crowd. So then that was the night I stopped doing, other than the Sundance party, that's when I stopped doing the uh, gambling parties, best gambling parties, better than Molly's game that you ever heard about. And the guy that approached me, Steve, do you know who the guy that approached me was? Who? Who? You don't know.
1: I, 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 I kind of think I might. I might, but I don't think you should say that name. Oh no shit! <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling I do know.
2: Is it a, a common friend of ours?
1: Yeah. What is the initials? Bizarro. That's right. Yes, oh, sir. Oh yes. Of
2: course. He's, that's a good man. <laughs> that is a good, good man. <laughs> Listen,
1: I want to stop a second. Now, we've never let anybody do what you just did. Right. Mike, we're old friends, and I want to hear, and I tell you, I got to say, I didn't know your story. That's why I shut the fuck up and really listened, because I didn't know a lot of this was transpiring behind the scenes when we were doing what we were doing. So, And I got moved sometimes, bro, and I just let you roll because... This show is about people's journeys. And at that moment, you were telling us your journey. I didn't want to interrupt it, man. And that's just, I I look at you in a different light. I mean, I always respect you, but I really, man, I was a... Yeah, great story, st- man. Steve
2: it's let us know, too, that you guys went way back and that you got a great story to tell. And and you, they'll both attest. I did interrupt maybe like four times, five times, but yeah! that's like it's a pittance to... uh, compared yeah. to what I normally do. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. He went easy on you. Yeah, I, yeah, right. So, okay. So. Damn. Jesus Christ. I didn't realize we had such a big guy on our hands. I mean, I. There's I, other parts of other parts It's making
3: the story, me nervous. Like,
0: yeah. like my,
3: my dad, when my dad was down and out, because I've seen a lot of shit. My dad's gay brother died in his arms after he shot and killed himself, you know? And I was Damn. like, the, the, like two weeks after I met him for the first time and I really liked the guy, you know, and, and that's when he became homeless afterwards. He just, I've seen this viral, you know, and it's like we've, you know, when you see somebody, it's kind of got a lot of pain. Although I didn't grow up hard. I didn't have to join a gang or anything, but I, there's so much dysfunctionality. You're not supposed to like be around orgies when you're like seven years old, you know, but it just makes you better, I think.
1: Oh, yeah, it makes you better at something. I yeah, mean, it makes yeah, you better. Uh, what is it? What is it? Here's a, here's a question a like you, Muhammad would ask.
2: Go ahead. I was, go ahead. Go ahead. What go does ahead. it make you feel like
1: to have to walk outside to, to a van? Dusty old van. <laughs> oh, crack that door open and look your father in the eyes. You know, what does that feel like for a, you know, 10-year-old boy? How old were you when he was homeless?
3: I was actually 17. I was still 17. in high school. So I in high bro. I, I loved it. Wait, okay. wait, wait, wait,
2: wait, wait. Hold on. Let's not yeah. gloss yeah. over this. Let's not yeah. gloss over this. Because Sean and I have a friend whose dad was homeless on a, on a massive meth run that could have killed Godzilla. Okay? Yeah. And if I asked Tone Capone, how do you feel? He would have made it sound good, like a good thing. He would have been like, oh, man, he's mm. doing, you know, it's hard, but it's has been, but underneath that, yes, there was like an, an encrusted hurt. So I got it. I mean, seriously, Mike, when you're, when the man in your life, who's supposed to show you how to be a man or at least be successful, yeah. Uh Is really homeless. How hard is that for a 17 year old to wrap his mind around? And what things can you admit to yourself? And what things can't you admit to yourself?
3: Yeah. Well, you get embarrassed a little bit, of course, but I've been, I've seen so much shit leading up to that. And I never got to see my dad. And I wanted my dad so much. He'd say, man, I'll be home at eight o'clock. And he'd show up in April. So, like, I didn't get to see him so many times. And it was like, I mean, he would put, you know, and when I, even when, when I was with him, when I was a kid, he put me, I go down to like, you know, down to Langer's Deli in 7th Alvarado. But just before we got there, I would wait 45 minutes in the car while he went up to his fucking hooker's house to like, you know, get it on. And like and then I was like hot in an L.A. car in the summer. I was like, what the fuck? So my dad was never around. And he was like, you didn't get mad at him because he was like Elvis and Santa Claus. The guy was just too nice and cool and fun. So by the time he like went through all that shit, he got lean in jail. He got his act together. He was a man on a mission. He was totally focused. He knew he fucked up. He was living in his van, but he started working out of his van. And I was knocking on the door every morning before I went to school and I got to see him. And I was like, I get to see him every day. I love this dude. I was fucking happy. I was a little embarrassed, but I was fucking happy because I got to see him every day now. What initially, though? I mean, how did you know that you could go and see him? And how did you even know he was in a van? Oh, he parked out in front of the house in Encino. Really? Good morning, yeah. Dad. I'm going to school. Hmm. He wake up. Ah, oh, thanks, son. Yeah, I'm getting ready to, you know, get it going. You know, he, just, he was hustling. He was trying to I get see. back on his feet. So it wasn't like he was
2: parked somewhere downtown and you had to go find him in the van and he was in a mattress in the back.
3: He got along with my dad and my step my, my stepdad and my mom still. He couldn't you couldn't get angry at this guy. He was like literally like Santa Claus and Elvis. He looked like Elvis and he acted like Santa Claus. Okay. And so
2: what did he explain? Did he actually kind of come clean to you at 17 and say to you, look,
3: I made a lot... Like, what did he say to you about why uh, he was where he was at? It. We talked about everything. No sensory, man. He would. Uh, you'd have to ask him about the dark side of his life, you know, because he's seen some fucked up shit, like, way worse than any uh, fucked up shit. Yeah, I can't even get into it. But... You know, he would, he was very open and he would say, look, I fucked up. You know, this is not the way to do it, man. This is not the way, you know, first thing he said when I picked, when I went to Wayside to go visit him, yeah. he goes, he was funny. He goes, he goes, Hey man, I'm horny. I go, you might not want to advertise that here. You know what? That's not a good idea, but he was just funny, but he knew he fucked up. And, and it was like, he was already, his mindset was I'm already on the track to make it right and get out of this. And he never fucked up again, but he was always a street kid. Right. You know, yeah. my dad defended African American kid in his class, and uh, you know, and the teacher said, you know, he said, "Why are you pick?" My dad's like telling it the teacher, "Why are you picking on the black kid? Because he's a black kid." And he's like, "Stein, you want to stop?" You locked They locked my dad in the closet. And it was a good deed, right? But he ate everybody's lunches in the closet. You know, he dropped out of eighth grade. You know, he he was a street kid. Who was his dad? My dad's dad was uh, not a good man. He uh, he was a, a manager for um, Eddie Durani I remember Durant Duranti, forgot his name? But um, he uh, he was a Jimmy Durant. Jimmy Durant Yeah, yeah, Jimmy Duranti. Big nose.
1: Right.
3: Yeah. yeah. Right. The guy the did a lot of odd jobs. Wow. That's right. He did a lot of odd jobs, and and he um, he he beat my dad up, and he he got my my dad's first experience was like my his dad getting him hookers for the first time. He'd take him on the road with him, and he wasn't around. He left him. That's why my dad was put in an orphanage when he was eight years old and had to Fuck. run away from the orphanage. And my dad grew up in the 2nd second, second in St. Mark's in Lower East Side, New York, until they finally, he came back and moved to Brooklyn. And then he still was kind of homeless after going to 8th grade. And he good, dig, digged up clams in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, to survive. And then my dad fucking started, his, started working when he was 8 years old at a watch company. And he started his own company at 13 years old, selling nylon stockings after World War II. Damn. So, I
2: mean, and by the way,
3: no knocking, digging clams. My people have been digging
2: clams for thousands oh, of years. That's I how just love do. the
1: way that sounds, though. Long neck.
2: Digging clams. Digging Sheepshead clams. Yeah. Sheep's head. But, but the thing is, is what's interesting about that is, I mean, orphanages back then, I mean, orphanages now aren't cool, probably. I bet you behind a lot of doors, there's a lot of weird shit that goes on. Orphanages back then. <sighs>
1: Are you kidding me? There were
2: no rules. There were no <laughs> rules. There none. There were none. You just that's drop that's your kid off there. You
1: now. would send the kid there. But you want to know something? It's crazy, Mike, because. I know my dad and his brother were catching beatings and left young, dude, from there. They, they, they left young. They right. just got the yeah. hell out of there. And I'm talking about fucking 14, 15 years old taking right. off. My grandfather and his brother, dude, they, they left at 13. They ran away, 13 and 14, they ran away from home to go work for the circus, bro. In Chicago, they left with the circus. They ran away from home. That's like a P.T. Barnum story, bro. Dude. The, these young fucking, yeah, dude. And it's those types of stories. And they were getting, and them too, abusive and alcoholism heavy. And and they were, this is through the depression, my grandfather. Right. life, And they didn't have nothing for him. So they had to take off and find their own, man. And they went off with the fucking, the, 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 with the carnival, man. It's just crazy, dude. So, Mike, when you tell me about these stories, man, and about, yeah, I also have to look back and say to myself, you know, what would it have been like to have to be those guys? I always think that way. Right. Like, what would it have been like for me to experience what my grandfather experienced? Right. Because I got a real good story i like to tell you about, you know? But right. those guys, and they weren't running around telling everybody their story through their lives. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. There was no time for them right. to have podcasts and make right. design clothes.
2: Yeah, but you know what, man? It's even more interesting is, you know, those guys are sort of commonly part of what they call the greatest generation, right? And in the common sense approach or the conventional wisdom is kind of like they had their shit together. But then when you actually look at these situations, and World War II, I mean, is a great example because an entire people were decimated brutally. And it's like, yeah, there were heroes then that fought against that, But there sure were a lot of people that were silent or looked the other way, and there's a lot of fucking brutality back then too. That was just reason why it seems like the greatest generations because they just didn't talk about it,
3: so you don't know all the ugly shit that really went on. And it,
1: yeah,
3: yeah, through higher consciousness, guys, and really, you know, because I got I got heavily involved in personal development. You know, I've been I've done everything Tony Robbins ever done. I've been to Fiji and Namali. I've done it all. Wayne Dyer. And I will tell you, through higher consciousness, you could take the lessons of your parents and all your shortcomings, and that's why I do a show called Long Shot Leaders, is because I've seen the ebb and flow of failure. And you take all that, and the iron sharpens iron if you got your head screwed on straight, and you understand why people do what they do and why you do what you do and six human needs psychology, then you could take those hardship lessons and use it to your advantage. I mean, that is true. But to even, first of all, as you know, Mike,
2: personal development, when you first enter... Right. I mean, that in it of itself, just to get to the front door of personal development is a long process, yeah. right?
3: Yeah. You got to have sure. your head screwed on somehow just to get there.
2: Then yeah, you there's, get levels in- of
3: uncon- there's levels of consciousness, right? There's unconscious incompetence. You don't know how to tie a shoe. You don't even know what it is. Then there's mm-hmm. conscious incompetence. You know how to tie a shoe, but you don't know. But you, you know about it, but you don't know how to do it. There's conscious competence where you know how to tie a shoe, but you know you have to think about it. And then there's unconscious competence to where you... Know how to do something, and you don't even fucking think about it. Mastery, mastery, yeah. which is absolutely which is you've done it so
2: much it's now a part of you. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I think it's a long it, journey. I think in the society that we live in today, and this is just my opinion, what the fuck? I think most of us, a lot of people, are stuck in the overly conscious, trying to be competent stage. Mm-hmm. Mm. They what? know what they need to do. <laughs> they're, kind, they're doing it, but they're so overly conscious and they haven't done enough repetition that they're just f- brimming with anxiety and they feel stuck. And they feel oh, like they're man. in this like crossroads where it's like, I- I- am I being told by this anxiety and the difficulty of this task that this isn't for me and I need to start <sighs> over again? Right. Or... Is this part of the mastery process, and I
3: just need to hang in there and keep going? Amen. You know, Zig Ziglar had a great analogy. It's the, it's the water pump analogy. In the old days, there'd be a water pump, and you pump the water, and you pump it, and it goes up a large pipe. and a But you don't see the water where it is. You're just pumping it until it finally flows over and starts delivering water. But a lot of people pump, 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 and it's almost about to like give them water, and they give up, and then the water goes down again. And everything was wasted, but they didn't see that they were almost to have flowing water and it was come to fruition. They were almost to have that mastery. Right. So speaking of all of that now, you've been a witness to Big Steve's
2: life and his journey and his, his, you know, I would say like just refusing to quit. And what kind of observations can you pull from that or, or what sort of
3: things have you got to say about that? Mm. Well, I want to share something about Steve's You know, Steve and I clicked really well when we had our podcast, when he was on my show. And there's a reason for that. First of all, I love long shot stories, but also I I have such good memories of when I was a nightclub promoter and Steve was a big part of that. And also, I always liked Steve because he had a sense of humor. Right. And to me, sense of humor comes from pain. All comedy set in negative with, with a shattered assumption, right? So... When I got to know Steve, I, I started recently, I found footage from Love Hollywood's from a, not Love, a Generation of Sound, my documentary, that he, he's, he, he plays a little part in, a funny part. And at an outtake, he starts cracking up. And he was a big, tough guy back then, too. Right. But I saw a vulnerability, and I always liked that about him. I was like, why is this guy, he's vulnerable? And then I heard all the stories, you know, because I'd hear, I was like, what the fuck? He fucked up. Why'd he do that? What the hell's going on? <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, no, are you kidding me? I mean, he would tell me, he told me something way back when. I want to get into it. But he told me some shit. I was like, oh, fuck. He's about like, You do what you got to do. And I was like, you know what? But there's something going on with this guy. We come back. We dial back. He's on my show. I love Stephen Lucky Luciano because he's got the salt. I call it salt. He's got the grit. He's got something salty. He's been through the ringer. And as long as he can go on the trajectory of higher consciousness away from all that shit and live the second half of his life in a better direction, I fucking love Stephen Lucky Luciano. thanks, Mike. Yeah.
1: So...
2: why don't you how far are you into the long shot podcast because a lot of a lot of people hit us up and they're like you should do this podcast or i'm gonna do a podcast and sean O'Blue eyes uh, he's an expert in podcasting he's an expert in not only design sound design but also in sequencing and laying out the stories
3: <clears throat> how long have you been doing your podcast since March? It launched it, it launched, in, it launched in March, and we do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and sometimes I do bonus episodes. Great. So you, uh, you're dropping about three times a week, correct? Minimum. Uh, Minimum. Sometimes I'll do a Thursday or a Saturday, too, for
2: a bonus episode. Right. What is your thought about—because you know what I find uh, is sometimes I encounter people, they, they love the show, and, and everyone's full of advice, and I'm like, okay. And they, they sometimes I hear this thing where they're like, you know what? In your podcast, maybe you should hold back a little bit. You know, like, you know, things that are rare are valuable. You know, maybe there's just too much out there. And like, you know, maybe you should. What are your thoughts on that in the podcasting situation?
3: Bro, I got ADD, ADHD. I'm a fucking, you know, I, I get to, I can't, I'm an ex comedian. I'm an actor since I was 15. I can't fucking, I don't know any other way. I just got to open up. I get selflessly involved and look in people's eyes when I talk to them. I'm so, I love people. That's why I was a nightclub promoter. I just, like, I have an, Un- I, I I had no friends when I was younger, so for the rest of my life, I, I don't want to go to outer space. I want to examine the human mind and the intellect, and and so I want I, I want to know what people, what are the what how, what's their mother and father like? So your is answer
1: dinner? is, I'm just going to put out shows yeah. as much as possible. as so yeah. There but, is no holding back with you.
3: No fuck it, I just keep on going and I give it mm. all I got, and then that's it. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think about that, Steve?
1: Um, I think it's I think it's. Good for what Mike's doing. I think that 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 Mike's following that plan. That's working for Mike. I think with us, it's. Um, I wouldn't compare the two. We're two different types of things. What
2: you do know? you mean? What do you mean by that? Because
1: <laughs> I think that our podcast is. I maybe we would do maybe two or three shows, but I don't. I don't necessarily. It's why? Just, it, why it, aren't we comparable? Just fucking laid out because I'm because what I'm saying is. I don't domestic, necessarily domestic feel, feel like we should. I don't necessarily feel like we need to be put out as much content as possible. I think we have to have a meter and a governor how much we do let out.
2: Sean, um, what are you hearing? Hmm. It sounds very diplomatic. What are you hearing, Sean? Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm, I, I feel like he,
1: Mike should do what's true to him. Right. And then, well, you know, whatever we... I mean, shit, we record three shows anyways, um, usually. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's what's right for each person is is how they f- they feel about it. I right? like the fact that you do Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Yeah, that's... And then you have this bonus thing that you don't know when you're going to get it. I think that's <laughs> interesting, and I know that we play
2: with the idea... Of three. Of three, and we're at two. We're, we're at two, and we have a huge backlog... But I guess what I'm, I guess what maybe I didn't ask the question properly. Okay. Because the question that I was asking is, is there in the podcasting world is is there such a thing as
3: too too many episodes? I can I can give you an expert answer on that. Do it. Okay, so let me break it down to you know technically. So I just recently had on the show John Lee Dumas, who if you ever listen to a podcast called Entrepreneurs on Fire, it's the number one entrepreneur podcast on planet Earth. John Lee Dumas, grandson of the guy that they named Point Dumas after.
1: Okay.
2: No, no I, I just made so, that, up. I yeah, that up.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> John Lee Dumas an Entrepreneurs on Fire, he gets 1.2 million downloads a month. Go ahead. He is, uh, you know, he's been doing it since 2012. And he was the first guy to do a podcast uh, seven days a week on would interview, a new entrepreneur. And the dynamics of that is, is <laughs> exponential downloads, exponential right. inertia, right. Yes. exponential, every guest you have. So there's a power in that. I also run a business, so I don't go full force like that. If I didn't, if that was the only thing I was doing, I probably, you know, it depends. It depends on how much talent and how many, I have a format. I have long shot stories. I require I can tell you right
1: now that if, Schumacher didn't have a law firm. We would be doing seven shows a week. We'd be Easily. dropping every day, bro.
2: Easily, he might only have two slots. Yeah. Easily, in a day, fourteen. And, and I'll tell you something. Um, my thinking is is this is my feeling, and I'm no expert. But the issue that I see is is that in terms of media, we're moving into a different epic in terms of a different age of media. Media used to be, it seems to me, like movies, television shit, used to be more about I'm going to work and then I'm gonna go home and drink my fucking Miller High Life on the Easy Boy and TGIF, baby, and we're gonna watch Home Improvement and Roseanne's bullshit and escape for a minute, right? I think the reason why that was was because the technology and the gatekeepers were set up that it was very rare, and it was a premium, and it was broadcast all at the same time. Now that we're in a situation, I think we're going to have more and more a digital life.
1: Because you're not waiting on anybody else's
2: You're not time waiting friend. on anybody else's time. It's so cheap to put yourself out there, and most a lot of people aren't working full-time like they used to. Right. And a lot of people are gonna be doing jobs that are for the most part could be automated or are half automated, automated so they can listen and exist in a different realm. And what I think is happening is, is that the human life is essentially entering into a phase of digital life and in, 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 in some point your whole existence and your whole value uh, will be proportionate or directly cor- correlated to how big your digital presence is. Mm. I concur. And, and people will not want, it's not going to be necessarily about this is coming out at the same time every time. It's going to be more about I want to open this door and live in this world for a little while. I want to be friends with o Blue Eyes. I want to find out why he's socially awkward. I want to jiggle his tits. I want to see Steve and I want to be tough and I want to get yelled at. I want to talk to and get getting a crazy ass argument or right. all that shit. And I guarantee you going forward. This is my prediction. This reality that we're experiencing now will fade away as a memory. It will be something that we will only have digital records to talk about. And anything that didn't make it on there is fucking forgotten. And that's coming from an American Indian who grew up with part of my reality is that there's a huge chunk of of what was that nobody's wiped away gone. Right, They and remove life. history well, just hey, like and that. Life, and life still goes on. Right. Right? They're right. Still, you can still they, you get, can't erase some shit. You can. Right. It has been. They did it to it's your Muhammad. people and me, right? Hey, dude, they're doing it. Listen, they're doing it to the Holocaust right now, motherfucker. There you go. That's the truth. Yes. That is the fucking truth. They're trying truth. to
1: hide and get rid of that and make people forget about that, that ever happened.
2: Right. I, I'm, that, and you know what? Man. All of these conspiracy things are part of the big forgetting i believe
1: that i believe i really believe that man to get you on some other shit right
2: right the big forgetting and there'll come a point in time where it's like there's just some shit from the past that nobody really remembers or never came into contact with
1: so i changed my idea of thinking just today i learned something new right now he convinced me (laughs) it's about the digital footprint
3: I really think Real, so go to ahead, your Mike. point Chaman, you know is that it's going to get easier through technology and virtual assistants and you know, I have a friend and a name not another name another guy uh, outsource smart uh, David Michaels wrote a book called Outsource Smart and this day and age you can do you can go 7 days a week you can go 24/7 if you wanted to easier now than ever before through virtual assistants and all the technology and all the leveraging tools that we have this day right. and age and it just keeps on growing
2: right so that's in, in my thinking what we're doing right now Steve even when talking with Mike and having these kind of conversations I think listen Sean god damn it this Sean, is Sean wake up god damn it Say no rest home the point of the matter is is I think what we're doing right now is preserving how people used to socially interact when there wasn't as when there wasn't techno, this kind of technology Yeah
1: it is bro You're that's right, what we're doing
2: all the ways around Yes because because we, we're talking as if when we were in the parking lot at the meetings or if we're hanging out with our friends at a diner or whatever. It's like the, you went
1: way over there just a circle and come all the ways
2: back to this. Right. We're preserving how – because Human, a lot, e- human exchange. He, do you know how hmm. many – and I'm not going to pretend that there isn't some kind of technology even between any human exchange, right? right. You could say of like course. polite society is a technology. Sure. Okay. Yes. But think about this. A lot of people, young people who suffer from social anxiety or social awkwardness, mm-hmm. is because they didn't ha- they weren't thrown into the deep end of the pool, right. And learn how to navigate all that yes. interpersonal shit. Right? So
1: we're bringing that back. We're championing that. We're fostering
2: that. We're either Idea. doing that. We're doing that. But we're also making a record of it. There may come a point in time when this type of interaction is actually prehistoric. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Fucking Elon Musk, that Larry Flint motherfucker looking motherfucker, mm-hmm. he's right into this putting a chip into someone's head and all sort of stuff. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. <laughs> whatever. Okay. Whatever. The singularity. Whatever. I don't give a fuck. Okay. Wanna fucking jerk off turkeys? Go ahead. But the point of the matter is, is that whatever the interactions in the future are going to be. Mm-hmm they're probably, this is probably going to seem very prehistoric and antiquated, what we're doing right now. And the only people that are going to be able to point to it and talk about it, do research on it, uh, will be the people who will have access to these records. And that's why I don't like these other podcasts where it's like, it sound's fake. People get on there like, yeah, zigzag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I'm like, dude, that doesn't sound fucking natural. I hate Mike, that Mike, shit. Mike, do
1: you find that these um, podcasts, when you take listen to them, like Chumon said, I mean, what's your opinion about most of the podcasts out there?
3: Well, you know, there's a lot of people out there that start a podcast because they want to try to work through that shit. You know, unfortunately, I've, ha- I've been shoehorned. I had been forced into before I wanted to be an actor, before I was a stand-up comedian, before I got in personal development, all these things, you know, help, you know, being more personal and open vessel of your personality. Before that, though, my dad, when I did see my dad, I was forced to be around all kinds of like, you know, from plebeians to dignitaries. So right. I would be forced to be around, you know, the craziest people. And I was like, Dad, I just want to be with you alone. But I was around a lot of people all the time. And I was forced so so you that was a gift, actually, you know, because I'm I've been around And then when you're a nightclub promoter in the eighties, you run for president without an education, you know, you, you don't, you, you're just meeting thousands of people all night, shaking as many hands, going face to face and that tactile and then personal, you know, you know, amount of data of people, you have that subconscious competence now of interaction to where some of these guys that start podcasts, they don't have that. So that's why I think that people do need to get out more, be more, you know, tactile with people Force themselves to like, you know, if they want to be a better artist, podcast, whatever, you know, this day and age, we're restricted. You have to go out and meet people personally, not if you want even your digital world to be better to come out to be, and your consciousness level for human beings. you got to go meet people personally, even if you only have a digital world as well. All right, Mike. Now we've shaken each other's hands and, you know, <laughs>
2: lathered each other up. Let's get down yeah. to basics. What about comedy, bro? It was, uh, let's get real, because you said right. something that I know is true, which is that uh, comedy is fucking pain, really. I mean, underneath right. that. And a lot of comedians, comedians, uh, they have some very dark parts of them because they're, they're hurt people or who the fuck knows. I don't even know. But we right. know that, right? That's like a trope. Um, what is your take on what
3: comedy is and what's your approach? Okay. The anatomy of every joke you've ever heard in your entire life is built as such. There's an, there's an assumption, there's a shattered assumption, and a new equilibrium, equilibrium at the end of that joke. The common denominator between the assumption and the shattered assumption is a negative denominator. Meaning, Henny Youngman's joke, take my wife, please, means... The assumption is take her for example in the story I'm telling you. No, the the, the shattered assumption is take her because she's a bitch. Right. Okay. Right. So that that's the anatomy of every joke, whether it's physical, whether it's nonverbal, whether it's any. It's a shattered assumption. Even a baby, when you're like peekaboo, they assumed one thing, and now they're because they're, that's a lower consciousness, you know, humor. So it's it's that's that's the anatomy of it, a joke. Hold as on, far that, let's concerned.
2: slow it down for a second. Sean, did you get that? Mm. A joke is an assumption a shattered assumption and then a new equilibrium or a new status quo.
3: Well the the new equilibrium is a sh- is the shattered assumption. You assume basically it's th- it's three things. It's it's a premise, yeah, is yeah. an assumption. Yep. And the punchline is a shattered assumption yeah. and the negative yeah. denominator is it, it's it that that's what makes every joke is negative. Right. Think about every single joke, Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, everything.
2: Well, every okay. All right. So my favorite Richard Pryor bit, one of them anyway, because the guy's great, I fucking love him, mainly because the dude just sounds so goddamn natural when he's up there. It doesn't sound any different, right? But my favorite one is when he's talking about the wino and Dracula, right? And he's like, mm. winos, winos can end. the only thing a wino's afraid of is running out of wine. Mm. And then he does this bit where he walks in and talks about how a wino comes up on Dracula he's like, hey, you boy, <laughs> peeping in that window, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's your name boy Dracula what kind of name is that what's the assumption and the shattered assumption and whatever in, in in that
3: well well first of all wine you're talking about you know like wino, you know so he's like you know his wine. so you're thinking you know that's a play <laughs> on words and you're not you're not expect, expecting him to like you know have that little you know so but you know some things are more there's more sh- subtle but it's always negative denominator. That's a negative denominator, you know, wine, wino, you know, like all it cares about is wine. Right. But that's a more subtle, you know, and then you have just the personality. Plus also Richard Pryor had built in all his material and his humor. So there's another thing that comedians use as their tool is that the longer you've been a comedian and they know your material, now they're linked psychologically to you and your material. What is that? So it's easier to get them the to laugh. What does that mean? That's interesting. What does that mean? Well, there's a rapport there, right? So when people listen to your podcast, you know, they, they know your personalities now, as opposed to the first time they heard you, they're like, they're going to, they're going to laugh at your jokes. They're going to, they're going to empathize with you more. Even though, even though your premise might be smaller, you introduce something like Steve might show up and talk about something small. It's like, why do I care about, you know, him dropping the milk in the basket this morning? No, but Steve did it. And it pertains to so many things I know about Steve. I'm linked up with him. So there's rapport there. That's true. That time that you talked about that dude that told you
2: like, Hey man, I'm taking a shower. Yeah. Hey, like, you're like, I know, motherfucker. You just give me my shit. <laughs> right. And he's like, Hey, man, no, I'm going to stay in here and I'm going to take my time. Right. And we were all like, What the fuck kind of idiot is <laughs> that? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Playing games with his own life. Um, so. Real quick, real quick, the number one thing in stand up comedy yeah. is the number one thing that should be in our podcast. The number one thing is the rapport with the audience. When a young comedian starts doing stand up, when I was 19 and I did stand up, I was so, you're so not over yourself. You're young, stupid, and you're worried about your set. Yeah, you got to yeah. w- only worry about one thing, connecting to the people. You're there to have, you're there to know more about them. You're there to give, not not get a good set out of yourself. You're there to give them something. What was one of your, like, worst early jokes? Um, One of my worst early jokes is, like, if I could be, this is a bad one. It was just the 80, 86. I was like, <laughs> if I could be any lover in the world, I'd be Jamie Farr. Remember Jamie Farr with the big nose? I said, Jamie Farr. Yeah, it's Jamie Farr. He's got such a big nose. All sex would be killing two birds with one stone. (laughs) Look. You look like a hen pecking on a seed, but you'd be the oral sex king. And that, that's just so stupid. I've been selling that joke since like sixth grade. That sounds like a sixth grade joke. Yeah. Like, like yeah. if my nose was big, it would be like a huge dick. And then when I was in <laughs> the chick
2: out, so you would be like killing two birds with one stone. It was the worst joke. Ever. Was hilarious, dude. I've never <laughs> <it>. I love <laughs> <was hilarious>. <laughs> Um uh, Man. Yeah. Well, we ran the gambit, I think. Mike? Stein, Mike Stein.
1: Hey, um, uh, I think eventually you're gonna have to fucking uh, get Chumahan on your show. I think you. Yeah, uh, man, I, I want to hear you about
3: your long show. shot story. Something, tell me, Chumon's, yeah, Chumon's yeah, his story.
1: Dude, it, your his
2: story and your story Chumon. have some similarities. There are some
1: similarities between both you guys' stories.
2: Yeah, we both did some really bad Jamie farr comedy in sixth grade well, for right. sure. For sure. Both the tribesmen have
3: <laughs> <Crazy>. a <laughs> I love um, it, man.
1: Listen, man. Uh, Mike, thank you for coming on, brother. Thank you. The Long Shot Series.
3: Give, yes. us, a, give us a
1: plug, man. To I got a gift for you. all
3: you guys. I'll go for it. Okay, for you and, and everybody on the show. and Bizarro. Right? Yes. And and one of your guests, okay, uh, my company, the incorporated name of my company is Abadac. Stands for A Better Atmosphere Dedicated to All Kind. My my you you go to Tarps Plus, that's my main website, but you go to Abadac Inc. is the name of company. Mm -hmm. I sell a chair, it fits four hundred pounds, it's a giant camping chair, and it's huge. And it's called the Abadac Monster Chair. I'm sending you guys out one one for each of you and one for the dude.
2: You know what? I haven't seen Sean make an expression this whole show. He's like, This is Sean. Sean looks like a fucking Mm -hmm. air traffic controller. He's like
3: <laughs> you know, like this. All of a sudden,
2: you talk about a 400 pound camping chair, and he's like, <laughs> well,
3: here's, the, here's the thing. I, I hey, got one Sean, for Sean, why did that grab your jiggles? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you get hard on that? Yeah. Why is your dick hard? Come on. That, this is know. my CTA, unexpected. right? I got one for Sean. I got one for you. I got one for Steve. I got one for PR. Yeah. Right? I got one for one of your guests. Yeah. If anybody's got a long shot story out there, Go to longshotleaders.com and I want to hear your long shot story. Chumahan, I want to get your long shot story because I know you got one under the hood. Oh, but dude. any one of your guests that has a long shot story, we want to tell it. Go to longshotleaders.com and go to the pull down menu and let us know what your long shot story is, and let's have you on the show.
1: Nice. nice. Beautiful. excellent, brother. Beautiful. Sean, what what are you uh give us some yeah. of us on. your thing?
3: How about uh
1: Sean at movemental dot media? Hit me up. For your
2: podcasting needs. Yes. Right. Let me just yes. explain something. Good. Sean is to podcast what Bruce Lee is to g Kondo. Yes. So if you want to stop fucking around getting beat up all the time, fucking hit up my man at Sean at Media. You know what we should do? What should we do? We should record and videotape Mike Stein coaching you on how to self-promote. Okay. Oh my God, hey, that would be
1: so that good, would right?
0: Be
2: fantastic, Mike. Do you uh, think you could do that? You think you could take a, an introvert and be like, "Look, bro, you got to start going sh- topless. Just show <laughs> bro. Just get get your boobies out there.
3: Shake their nipples." Yeah. That, that, there's two ways to go. We can start off slow, or you just mm. throw them in the deep end. Deep
1: yeah. end. Deep end. Deep end. All right. I want to give a shout. Thanks again, Mike Stein. Listen pleasure, to uh, listen to both of our podcasts. Right. A hard Luck Show on. On Mondays and Thursdays. Uh, www.supermaxhardware.com This week we are dropping some summer surprise and summer techs. Mm, Truckers, we are. Mm. So be ready. Keep an eye out. Um, always, always roll with vibes, papers, and a big shout out to Burner Cookies, Cookies Brand. Um, and I wanted to say uh, a shout out to the city of Santa Monica, the soul assassins of Esteban Oreo and my kids and my grandson. There you go.
2: All right. Ovando Bowen, LLP. We wear braids to court. Let the tomahawks fly. Yes. Best representation money can buy. Yes. Woo. Also, let me tell you something. Damn, he's flowing. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Uh, Art of War, produced by The Hard Luck Show, coming soon. Best audiobook series Audiobooks. ever to hit the fucking shelves. Hard Luck, Art of War. Also, um, I want to say Hard to Kill. Hard to Kill. We were working on it yesterday. Yep. We also got This Knucklehead Life starring King Salmon coming soon. Yeah. Right? Right? Uh, Learn about why King Salmon thought that he had telepathy and telekinesis until he realized he was just high on acid. All right. I want to give a shout out to my wife, my baby Tigra. Yeah. Tiga, Papa's bringing home that money, baby. Yeah. Papa's bringing home that money. That's all I got.
1: Like we do about this time. Adios, amigos. From the Hard Luck Show.